Okay, Proverbs chapter 11, if you're not already turned there as we continue our study through the book of Proverbs together. Last time we didn't quite get out of the 11th chapter together. We left off at verse 26, so this evening we pick up here in Proverbs 11, verse 27, as we continue to take in these uh, statements of wisdom that God's given to us by the Holy Spirit and through Solomon recording these things for us. Proverbs eleven twenty seven tells us, he who earnestly seeks good finds favor, but trouble will come to him who seeks evil. So here the concept, of course, speaking about what path we choose to pursue, whether foolishly or wisely. He speaks of the one who seeks good. Of course, that's the wise thing to do, to seek that which is good, which is godly, which is God's path, as compared to being someone who seeks a path of evil that is in contrast to God's will and God's design. And here the wisdom given to us is that what path we pursue is going to, of course, determine the destination that we arrive at. And that's very important in life is though we may be able to take different paths if we were traveling roadways and to ultimately get to the same destination, certainly from here to any given destination, there may be this particular path or maybe you could go a different way and take a different path and still get it to a different destination. Uh, that doesn't apply, in regards, doesn't apply in regards to the realm of what is moral. That if we take a wrong path, it's going to end up at a wrong destination every single time. And it does not matter what path we take or how we think maybe we're, well, if we just take this turn or we just speed up a little, or we, that somehow we can end up at a good destination by taking a wrong path. That is complete deception. And the same is true in regards to wanting to arrive at a good destination. Uh, that, that no matter what we do, if we're taking the right destination, we're I mean, taking a right path and we're doing what is good, that's going to ultimately bring us to a good destination. God is going to honor those who choose to take a good and a right path and in good time and in due time. That's why the Bible tells us not to grow weary in well-doing, for he says in due season, at the proper time, he says, we'll reap a harvest if we don't lose heart or, or give up. And so here he speaks about those who earnestly seek what's good. And if you're earnestly, that is diligently seeking what is good, seeking to do what is good, particularly good and right in the sight of the Lord, he says, then you're going to find favor. That ultimately, God is going to get you to the right destination. He's going to put his favor upon that pursuit, and he's going to bless that with his divine favor as well as he says, however, be aware of the contrast, trouble will come to him who seeks evil. So again, it's the same idea again of what we talked about many times before, and we see it all throughout God's word, this principle of just sowing and reaping, to understand that if we are seeking evil, doing what's wrong, pursuing a wrong path, then, then we are naive and just foolish and self-deceived if we think that that wrong path is not going to bring trouble. It's not going to bring problems. It always does. It's just a matter of time. Eventually, those seeds will begin to sprout, and ultimately, an evil path, an evil pursuit is going to end up in the destination of trouble and problems and hardships. And so the wise person 
keeps this in consideration. What path you pursue is going to determine the destination you arrive at. And that's an encouraging thing because that means you can control your destiny. One person can control your destiny. You. And we're feeding a bunch of nonsense to people today and these you know, new ideas we're trying to feed to young people and this CRT nonsense, this and that. Look, here's who controls your destiny. You. You control your destiny. Do all of us to some degree deal with different challenges and obstacles and maybe we don't have the best opportunities or good opportunities? But look, the bottom line is you can have someone who's got perfect, ideal, fantastic opportunities and they can make wrong choices and end up at a wrong destination. Case in point, the first few chapters of your Bible, Adam and Eve. How could they possibly complain about their circumstances? They were in the paradise of God. They had everything made available to them. They had relationship with God and help with God. They made bad choices, and they made a troubled outcome for their lives. In the same way, there are many, many people throughout the word of God and throughout human history, and some of you here in this room, who are victors who did not have the best of circumstances. Maybe you didn't get the best of opportunity or the best of kind of a starting point as other people around you did, but you chose not to make excuses, not to play the victim card, not to say it's impossible and, and too much is against me and woe is me, but you chose and said to say, you know what, I control my destiny. And so despite the, the, the cards that have been dealt to me, I'm going to play this hand well. I'm going to play it wisely. And because you chose to pursue a right path, the result of pursuing that good path is that God's favor came upon it and you controlled a much better destiny and an outcome because simply you took control of that by earnestly seeking what was good rather than just seeking what's evil and bringing more trouble into your situation. So good encouragement. You and I are in control. The wise person understands that. Verse 28, he then says, And he who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. Now, in some ways, this connects back, I think, to some of the verses we looked at at the closure of last time, where he talked about the value of generosity and living a life of being generous in every way with our time, with our talents, with our resources. If I can draw your attention back to verse 24 and 25, remember there was where he said there's one who scatters, that is they're giving away, they're pouring out like they're scattering seed, yet even though they're scattering and you would think, well, if you scatter what you have and you're let going of what you have, then you're going to end up not having enough for yourself. And because God rewards a generous spirit because it's like unto his nature who's a generous God. He says, there's one who scatters and yet they actually increase more. That is, God blesses that in return comes back to them and there's one who withholds more than is right. That is, they could be giving or they could be giving more and for whatever reason, lack of faith or just selfishness or greediness or wanting more for themselves or just, just being uncaring, they try and hold on to and retain more than, he says, more than what's right. The idea is they're, they're holding back more than they need to, and they're not sharing, they're not helping, they're not looking for avenues and ways to be giving properly, and he says, and that leads to poverty. They end up lacking. They end up not having enough, and though they try and hold on to more, they end up actually, in the outcome, losing more, not just poverty, I think, literally, financially, but it just leads to, in the sense of poverty of spirit, even, just an empty life, because a selfish life is an empty life. 
A giving life is a life that's full and blessed and bountiful. And he says the generous soul is the one that will be made rich, and he who waters will also find they end up being watered themselves. Again, God always brings back return upon that. Now, in connection to this concept, he says in verse 28, he who trusts in his riches will end up falling. So again, nowhere in God's word does it condemn being wealthy, being someone who's been enriched financially. Deuteronomy chapter 8 says that God is the one who gives power to create wealth. So whether it's creating a small amount of wealth or a moderate amount of wealth or a massive amount of wealth, at the end of the day, God gives skill, God gives job opportunity, God gives avenues of business and, and, and our vocation, and God is the one who chooses to bless what we do in our work, and there are some people that God truly actually blesses to a greater degree, and God allows them to be very prosperous and to be successful. I you know, just read in my devotions this morning regarding uh, Isaac in the book of Genesis, and there it says of, uh, of Isaac as he was in the land and he was doing the work that he does, it says, and, and the Lord prospered him and he began prospering. And then it says, and the man became very prosperous. And again, the indication is he was just doing what all the rest of us do, taking care of his flocks and herds and working the land and digging wells, and God chose to bless and to prosper him. First Timothy 6 just simply says it's the love of money. That's the root of all kinds of evil. And 1 Timothy 6 particularly gives instruction to those in the church who are wealthy. In other words, there were clearly people in the church of Ephesus who were more well-endowed than others. They were wealthy. God had blessed them. And there are people even in the body of Christ, spiritually, the Bible speaks of having the gift of giving. And it seems that people who have that spiritual gift as a ministry to be people who use their resources financially as a tool to bless lives, to empower people, to help missionaries and mission, you know, missions organizations or ministries, and, and, and they just see that as something they can do as, as a way of exercising a gift to bless in that way that clearly God has to, guess what, give them excess or they have nothing to give. So if you're going to have the gift of giving, clearly, to some degree, you have to have something to give. And some people God has blessed greatly, and he's always pouring into them, because they can manage it properly and they're able to not trust in it or hoard it or hold on to it and they see it as a tool they see it as a vessel to bless lives and to help people and do things for god's kingdom and first timothy 6 gives that caution and warning to the wealthy who were in the church not to trust it says first timothy 6 in uncertain riches but in the living god who richly gives us all things to enjoy and so here he speaks much to the same of he, he says, who trusts in his riches. That's just the danger. We never want to put our reliance or over-reliance upon our money or excess wealth or how much we have in a bank account or you know, how much we have in a, a retirement plan. He says, if you trust in your riches, that's going to lead to some degree to, to, to stumbling and to falling because the reality is, the Bible even says, riches make wings and they fly away, right? Everybody knows sometimes money talks, and one of the things it says is, goodbye, goodbye. You can't hang on to me any longer. Now you have to pay this repairman, or now the you know, economy changed and the market crashed or whatever, and, and, and wealth just has a way of it. As quick as it comes, it can disappear right away. 
Things can fall apart very quickly and wealth can disappear in many different ways. So that's why the Bible says we're not to trust in riches. Nothing wrong with having riches, but he just says don't put your trust in that. Don't depend upon that. Don't put your reliance. The Bible says our dependence should be upon God because he's the one who brings the riches. He brings the wealth. He's our provider. And so we want to trust in him as the living God who supplies all things, not the resources and the money themselves. That, that, that's a missed application of our reliance. And he says, if you do that, you're going to, fall, you're going to end up falling. Because sometimes God will allow us to stumble if we put too much trust in our own finances to let us see it was never the money anyway. It was the person, it was God, the Father, the provider who supplied those things. And he can give and take away as every sees fit. So he gives this caution here. Don't put confidence because money is undependable. Nothing wrong with having it, but it's undependable. But he says, here's the thing that you should do, verse 28, but the righteous those who live in right relationship with God, those who live in right relationship with other people, rather than letting money be their God, letting the love of wealth create a root of evil with them instead. Those who just live righteous, he says, they will always flourish like foliage. The idea is those who live right in time, your life will flourish just like a green, healthy plant that takes root and it will blossom in season. So God says, look, don't focus on holding your wealth or depending on your wealth or trusting how much. God says, just focus and depend upon me. And God says, the wise person just gets rooted in living righteous. Just live right, God says. Just live in right relationship with God. And when you and I do that, the wonderful thing is your life will begin to flourish like a healthy plant. And in season, God will bless and prosper and seasons come and seasons change, but your life will continue to be fresh and flourishing if you live right with God above all else. That's where the focus should be. Verse 29, he says, and he who troubles his own house will inherit the wind. The idea is the, the stormy wind coming like a hurricane and blowing through with destruction. He who troubles his own household will inherit the disastrous wind. And the fool will become servant to the wise in heart. So here he speaks of doing things to trouble, notice, our own home or our own family. And the Bible speaks of how that is an aspect of foolishness, someone who troubles their own house. Rather than doing things to build your own house, to, to seek to solve problems in your own house, to make your priority taking care first and foremost of your own household and your family, he says, instead, the fool is one who brings trouble into their own household. And he says, the unfortunate thing is that when a person does that in foolishness, that lack of wisdom and foolishness, it causes them to end up inheriting the wind. The stormy winds come, and then all of a sudden, the household begins to struggle and even fall apart, sadly, sometimes, as the storms of destruction come, really by, like, self-generated storms. And again, God loves families, and he doesn't want to see that happen, right? None of us want to see families falling apart and the stormy winds coming and breaking up homes and households. And so God's saying, look, don't do that. Don't trouble your own house. Do what you can to try and avoid that from happening because he says the fool will end up finding himself being a servant or a slave in the process. And particularly notice 
enslaved to the wise of heart because the wise of heart will have a stable household and a stable life and they'll be the ones who will be inheriting what's good while the fool will end up losing more and more in the process. He says, verse 30, and the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. So notice the, the fruit produced of a righteous life is like a tree of life. In other words, a life lived right, the Bible says, will be fruitful. It will produce a life-giving kind of, you know, outcome that will be something that imparts life to other people. So when you and I live in a way where we're living righteous, the fruit of our life will begin to grow and fruit is never produced for the tree or for itself. It's produced, right, for others who partake of the fruit. That's why the Bible speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, says, which is love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Look, that fruit of the Spirit that can be produced in our life as it imparts life, the life of God's Spirit, the fruit coming out of our life, that's not really first and foremost for us. It's for the people around us to partake of that fruit. Oh, Tony's a much more loving person. Nice being around somebody who's more loving. Oh, Tony's becoming more gentle. Nicer to be around him now. They're taking, partaking of that. He's faithful. Oh, finally, he's got a little bit of self-control. Well, it's nicer being around him now. And so that fruit imparts the life of the Spirit to other people around us, and it blesses them as our life becomes you know, fruitful in the sense of it's imparting a life-giving benefit. And ultimately, he says, the wise person, look at verse 30, the one who is wise is one, he says, who wins souls. And the idea there is the wisest thing that any of us could ever do is care about the souls of people more than anything else in life. And why is that? Because the bottom line is the wise person understands there are only two things that exist that are eternal, that is beyond God. And that is the word of God, that's eternal, the Bible says, and human beings, the souls of men and women. God himself, who is eternal, makes it very clear to us there are only two things that really are eternal. So God says the wisest people, they put their foremost energy, efforts, and concern upon the souls of human beings and seeking to win souls over to the Lord, to help people to enter into relationship with Jesus Christ, to experience salvation, winning souls in conversion, and just winning souls over to being in right relationship with God. He says the wise person has that proper perspective and they have that priority in the way that they live wisely. Verse 31, he concludes the chapter here saying, and if the righteous will be recompensed on the earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. So here's sort of a a contrast. He says, if God holds the righteous themselves accountable in righteous discipline, or even perhaps a measure of judgment if they should err and do what's wrong. If he says, if the righteous will be recompensed, right? And Peter, when he writes, he says that judgment begins where? At the house of God. So he's saying, if God will hold the righteous, his sons and daughters accountable, and may at times discipline those whom he loves, if they err and go off track, God disciplines like a father his sons. He says, if that's the case with the righteous, the contrast to kind of shock foolish living, he says, verse 31, how much more the ungodly and the sinner. 
That is the one who lives in rebellion to God. And, and he says, how much more risky and dangerous those who live in rebellion to God and foolishly disregard God. If God's going to hold accountable the righteous, he says, how much more do you think he's going to hold accountable as far as his disciplinary action, those who are living without God and consciously sinning and just living in rebellion to God? The Bible says, woe to him who strives against his maker, and it's the fool that says in his heart that there is no God. So here, just sort of that strong warning there to live wisely rather than erring in foolishness by rejecting God's involvement in your life. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 12, he then says, and whoever loves instruction, and here the idea of the word instruction seems to be in a sense of sort of corrective guidance, or we might say constructive criticism, and we can tell sort of by the way the, the proverb reads out, he who loves instruction loves knowledge. They, they want to learn more, but he who hates correction is, and the Holy Spirit said this, not me, stupid. You mean, oh, that's a bad word. You're not supposed to say stupid. That sounds so strong. God just says, no, it's stupid. <laughs> Those who act that way, God says, there's just one word to define that. God said, I would call that Stupid, the person who appreciates, notice the principle here, who appreciates the insight of others. The Bible says here in chapter 12, verse 1, those who appreciate the insight of others demonstrate that they really have a true desire for knowledge. Those who really want to learn, those who really want to know things, look, the only way to truly learn things is to listen to other people. Right, And whether that's learning in a classroom, getting education, you got to listen to someone who supposedly, hopefully, has more in, you know, knowledge on the subject matter, the professor, the teacher. You have to be willing to learn and accept the knowledge they have if you're going to increase in knowledge in that subject of biology or chemistry or you know whatever it may be. And, and that plays itself out to everything outside of the classroom as well. The only way to learn is we have to listen to other people. And sometimes listening to other people means recognizing they know more than me on this topic or on this subject. And so if they point out to me, hey, your, your, your thought on that is wrong or the way you're doing that is not correct, he says, if you truly want to learn and you want to increase in knowledge, people who value being guided in matters and hearing someone else's even corrective instruction, or we might say constructive criticism, he's saying here in our proverb, those are the people who really want to know what's right. And that's what he means there when he says there, whoever loves instruction from others, those are the people who really love knowledge. They're the ones who really love learning because they're willing to take instruction, even corrective instruction from others. In contrast, but he who hates correction, God says, is stupid. In other words, when someone despises correction from other people, when a person just kind of you know, does everything they can to reject listening to others, and even maybe when they hear a corrective word from others, if they just hear it, but they dismiss it and they just ignore it and do what they want anyway. And they kind of in one ear and out the other, and before they walk out the room, they're just going to go do their own thing anyway. And, and they take no value in respecting the fact that other people may say something that is correct, and they are wrong. God says here, they simply reveal their stupidity as a person, because they think that they could never possibly be wrong. 
and they behave like they never need to have someone else give them guidance or correct them. So again, we have to learn to love input and correction as needed. And he says people who won't listen to others, they just show stupidity, just a lack of understanding that everybody benefits at times from listening to other people in their life. Verse 2 of this chapter, he says, And a good man obtains favor from the Lord. Again, God's blessing, his favor. But a man of wicked intentions, he, God, that is, will condemn. So those who desire to do what's good, that is, they want to do what's proper in the Lord's sight, they want to do what's pleasing to God. He says those who desire to do what's good and right, the blessing is they will end up as the result of that experiencing the favorable blessing of God upon their pursuit, upon what they're doing and their cause. The favor of the Lord will come upon that. Generally speaking, God's going to bring his favor upon those who are doing what's good. Those who are seeking to do what's good in the sight of the Lord, his favor is going to come upon such a thing. And in contrast, he says, but a man of wicked intentions, which implies the exact opposite, someone who their intentions are not to please God. It's some self-serving desire. It's some selfish interest or motivation, or it's just wanting to, in their own way, pursue what's rebellious and indulge something that's clearly wrong and they're consciously doing it anyway. He says, when someone has wicked intentions, wrong intentions, a selfish agenda, contradicting God's ways, he says there, God being greatly displeased is going to condemn such intentions. That is, God is going to work in resistance to that to put an end to those pursuits of evil. Verse 3, he says, and a man is not established by wickedness, that is, by doing what's wicked or wrong, but, contrast, the root of the righteous cannot be moved. So verse 3 teaches us that a, a person's degree of, we might say, stability or their security is directly dependent upon their choice to either live righteously or to live wickedly. And I don't know about you. To me, it's very appealing to have stability. To me, it's very appealing to have security. To have a sense of peace of mind and that life is not like a roller coaster up and down. I mean, circumstances, I understand, we don't have control of them. And li life is already like that circumstantially to a degree. But I don't want to live in a way or conduct my life or my affairs in a way where I'm, in a sense, putting myself on the roller coaster, where constantly I'm creating continual instability in my life. Where, where I'm just living through life like chronically motion sick. And everybody who's on board with me is like somebody stuck out in the sea because they're on board with my ship and I'm just subjecting them to the absolute worst storm, constantly up, constantly down, and everybody on board is just motion sick and, and just miserable because of all the instability or the constant, you know, there's no security. It's up, it's down. We're here, we're there. We're doing this, we're doing that. And it's just, just all over the map. And here God says, look, life doesn't have to be that way. He says, but no, wisdom knows that a man is not going to be established by wickedness. That is, those who do what's wicked, God's saying, look, when you do what's wrong, you basically disrupt the process of God bringing stability into your life because God won't bless wrongdoing. And so he says, if you do what's wrong, 
understand you're basically hindering God's ability to get your life stable. You're holding God back from being able to bring a good, stable, secure life because doing what's wrong, God won't let that take root. God will keep agitating and then disrupting it because God doesn't want you to get rooted in wrongdoing. So it will constantly bring instability. That's why the Bible says in the book of Isaiah, there is no peace, saith the Lord, for the wicked. That is, they're like the troubled sea agitating. In other words, when, when someone's doing what's wicked or wrong, God purposely disrupts their peace. God purposely lets them live in chaos and miserableness because God's hoping maybe you'll get motion sick enough that you'll stop that and that you'll let me get you on a nice, stable, firm path. And how does that happen? He says the root of the righteous cannot be moved. So there's the contrast. Those who are righteous or do what's right, the exact opposite. God blesses them because they become rooted in a nice, solid way. God brings stability and he brings security, and they won't be moved when the storms come. Are the storms going to come? So yes, but storms don't have as strong as an effect to uproot trees who got a good, deep, strong root system. And so he says here, those who are doing what is righteous, they're going to have good, deep, firm roots, and they cannot be moved. When the storm comes, they'll stay stable because of the fact that God has deeply rooted them with good stability is the reward for living the right way and doing things as God intends. Now, verse 4 was written about my wife. God knew that. <laughs> An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Now, the second half, maybe yours, not mine. But she who causes shame, contrast, a different type of wife, is like rottenness in his bones. Now, when he describes there, verse 4, an excellent wife, the term speaks of a noble wife. When we talk about a, a noble or an excellent wife, the idea is just speaking of a wife who brings great worth. And this is the idea here. He's speaking about the man who finds a wife. You know, the proverb says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor from the Lord. Well, here's kind of the same idea here by way of principle in our proverb right here to one we'll see later that an excellent noble wife, Proverbs 31 will give the expansion of this. If you want to know what that excellent noble wife looks like, there's a whole chapter at the end of the book of Proverbs. But he says, one who has this kind of wife, it speaks of a wife who adds great worth to her husband. That is, a man marries a woman who is so excellent and noble in character and who she is and what she is that she brings, we might say, that she brought a lot to the table, man. <laughs> man, when I married her, I got enriched, and she brought great worth and great value into my life in the partnership, in the helper, and the compliment that she became to me. And he says, one who has an excellent wife, she's like the crown of her husband. And think about it, what's a crown for a king or a ruler? A crown is an indication of power, right? A crown is an indication of respect. Its crown is a valuable thing. You know, kings don't throw their crowns around. They take good care of their crowns. And that's a good reminder too. If you've got an excellent wife who the Bible says is she's like the crown on your head, uh, you don't treat your wife like a tool belt. She's, she's a crown. Kings don't disrespect their crowns. They don't play football with their crowns. They take good care of their crowns. They cherish their crowns. They, they realize the value of their crowns. And they, and they, 
stay connected to that crown as something that's very important to a great part of who they are. But I think this is an interesting picture. The excellent wife of great worth, she's like a crown of her husband. Just like the crown was, was what signified power and respect and dignity for the king, I think what God's telling us here is that a good wife, like a crown, she empowers her husband. And she's a great enabler. And she adds such worth to him as a man in who she is that she brings such support and honor. She empowers him and she enables him as a man to succeed, to do much better, to excel like a king. She adds great value to him and to all that he does. And he says the contrast can be true as well. The opposite, the wife, he says instead, who could perhaps be causing shame to her husband is like rottenness, that's a strong word, isn't it? Rottenness in his bones. And here the idea is the opposite of influence in a negative way. A poor wife, the Bible is saying, can tragically poison a husband and make him become an unhealthy man, make him become an unhealthy person, like rottenness in his bones, a poor wife who causes shame and harm by her behavior and the way that she conducts herself as a person can actually cause such poor, unhealthy conditions, she can actually bring a man down. She can dethrone him. She can hold him back from excelling and from being empowered to do what he's called to do. She can bring shame and heartache and pain and problems and emotional turmoil where she drains all the life out of him. And basically, he's unable to succeed, and she can slowly ruin his life as a man. So uh, great wisdom there, both to the husbands, to the wives. If you're single, I would recommend pick verse 4a instead of verse 4b. Just a thought, just a little free wise advice there. If you're still single, choose wisely. Makes a big difference. Our spouses have incredible influence, and it works both ways, vice versa, with husbands and wives. So good to remember the influence that we really can bring to our marital partners one way or the other. Verse 5, he says, And the thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. So notice he speaks here of the thoughts of those who are doing what's right as well as the counsels and ideas of those who are doing what's wrong. And the idea here is living righteously helps us to have right thinking patterns. The thoughts, the thinking patterns, the ideas that come into the mind, he says, of the one who's living right are going to be right. So I want to have right thoughts, Lord. I want to think right. God says, well, live right. And if you just start living right, you'll start thinking right. If you live righteously, you live in right relationship with God and live righteously, he says the thoughts of the righteous are right. You can better rely, my thoughts are right. My thinking is correct. My view is proper on this matter. It's a great blessing and encouragement. But he says, in contrast, those who are wanting to live wickedly and listening to the counsels of, of wickedness, what's going to happen is they're going to listen to other wicked people and it's going to cause them to be deceived, he says. And their thinking is going to be misguided, and that's going to be the downside. The foolishness of their wrong living brings about them being self-deceived because they're not thinking correctly. Verse 6, he says, And the words of the wicked are lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the upright will deliver them. So wicked people will be those who use their words, the Bible says, to inspire hurtful ideas 
harmful plans, their wrong hearts will prompt them to encourage people to do ruinous things. Let's lie and wait for blood. The idea is let's harm, let's do something harmful and ruinous. So again, that unhealthy heart is going to cause them to use their words to prompt and guide people to do ruinous wrong things. Where in contrast, he says, those whose hearts are pure and honorable, the upright, he says, out of the overflow of their heart are going to come words and counsel and ideas that are going to help speak things that deliver people from problems, that help people to get out of situations and out of problems. Verse 7, and the wicked, he says, are overthrown and are no more, but the house of the righteous will stand. Now, this is much like our verse that we saw earlier back in verse 3, this idea of stability versus instability. Security versus insecurity. Here the picture is not a rooted plant or a rooted tree. Here the picture is like a good foundation of a house. He says the wicked versus the righteous. The wicked, because they have no good solid foundation, they are overthrown. That is, they're vulnerable to pressures and storms and winds because there's no good foundation. The house is easily toppled. As compared to, he says, the one who's living righteous their house will stand, the idea is, in the midst of the storm. So again, just a wisdom principle. Wicked people have no solid foundation built into their life. Oh, it looks like they're having such a good time. I mean, look, they're doing this and they're doing that. Looks like they're getting away. I mean, look at the house they built. I mean, look, and they got this and they got that. Look, you can build a $4.5 million house and have 72-inch plasma screens on every single wall and have the most expensive furniture in the world. If you build a bad foundation, none of it matters. None of it matters. Construction says you build a good, solid foundation, then everything you build on top of it is going to be dependent upon survival based upon the foundation that you built. And the same is true in lives. People might have lives, oh, wow, wow, wow. But the bottom line is, if they're living wickedly and they have no solid foundation to their life, as soon as the storm comes, and storms come, they're unavoidable. Life's hard, trials, challenges, problems. When the storm comes, the house goes falling down and it gets overthrown and everything falls apart. In contrast, he says, the beauty and the wisdom of living righteous is that house will stand. It'll be stable. It will go through storms too. The tests and the challenges will come to that house as well, but that household will be upheld and be stable because a good, stable foundation was built. Jesus illustrated this principle. I encourage you to look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 to 27, where he talks about those who hear the word of God and obey it and put it into practice and those who hear the word of God, but they don't obey it and they don't put it into practice. He says they build two different foundations. One builds on sand, the other builds on a solid rock, stable foundation. And again, we want to live out and do what's righteous. That's what contributes to a good, solid foundation. Verse 80 says, And a man will be commended or honored according to his wisdom, but he who is of a perverse heart will be despised. So again, the way that we live our life will determine what people think about us, how people relate to us. Do you want to be honored? Do you want to be respected? Do you want people to commend you and speak well of you? Well, he says, live wisely. When someone lives wisely, people, that's a good guy. That's a solid woman. Man, that's a, that's a decent man. Again, as you live wisely, people respect that. They, they, they may not agree with the way that you live, but they admire it. They admire it. Man, he's got a good marriage. He's got a good family. He's, he, he lives a pretty decent life, and, and they, they recognize and they commend that, and they long for, in a sense, the, 
life that they see you having with admiration. But he says, someone who's got a crooked, perverse heart, if you're living in a crooked way, he says, you just end up being despised. People just loathe you and disrespect you. You have no sense of admiration among those who are around you when you're ruining your life. Verse 9, better is the one who is slighted but has a servant. The idea of slighted is overlooked or looked down upon, but at least you still have a servant. Then he who honors himself gives the image there better or higher or more important, but they actually lack bread. Now, the idea seems to be here in verse 9 that what is true of a person is more important than the image that they project. Let me say that again. What is true of a person is much more important than the image they project. He says, better to be thought less of, overlooked, and to be someone who's slighted, you're not recognized, you're not admired, but you're actually doing well. He says, overlooked, but they got a servant. They're doing okay. They at least have a servant still. They may not have 10 servants, but, but they're doing okay. And he says, much better to be overlooked and thought less of and truly be doing well than to strive to give a false image and actually be struggling and living in poverty and just trying to project this image outwardly. And some people, look, some people may project the image that they're successful. Some people project the image that they're wealthy when the truth of the matter is they're really struggling. They may even be struggling to pay their bills, but outwardly they give the image, they project the image as they honor themselves I'm rich, I'm wealthy, I'm successful. And the bottom line is they may be on the borderline of bankruptcy. And so God says, what's more important, the image you project or what's really true of yourself? God says, much better to just be real and have a genuine image. Wise people care more about being real than giving an inflated image to try and give some projected image of greatness to other people. God says, be wise about that, care about being right, not impressing other people with a unrealistic image. Verse 10, a righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. So here the Bible speaks this reminder, God's creator, God's created all things, and he's seeming to imply those who are in right relationship with God will care about all things in creation, even the very animals that they owned. Understand in that day, they owned animals for flocks and herds, they owned animals. Some of those animals were for food. Others were for pets. And he says, those who are living in right relationship with God, they'll regard, they'll treat properly the animals under their care. But he says, the wicked, the best they can do at most is just to be completely cruel. He who tills his land, verse 11, will be satisfied with bread, but he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. So notice, those who are diligent, he says, and responsible, that will bring about them having what they need to sustain themselves. He who tills his land, the idea is they get out and they work. They put in the work. They do what they got to do. They till their land responsibly and diligently. He says they end up being satisfied with bread. In other words, they acquire what they need to sustain themselves. But those who follow frivolity, which speaks of just worthless pursuits, we might say unrealistic dreams, chasing a pipe dream, you know, just doing frivolous things that don't amount to nothing and contribute nothing, just kind of you know, daydreaming and lollygagging and just life's a party and recreation. He says those who follow a life of frivolity, they end up finding themselves as those who are devoid of understanding because what are they devoid, lacking in understanding? 
if you don't work, you don't make it. Everybody's got to work. <laughs> work was something that God established in the Garden of Eden. Oh, works the curse. No, hard works the curse. Read your Bible correctly. God put Adam in a garden, and he told him to till it and take care of it when he was in paradise. God gave him something constructive to do, something to occupy his time, a way to, it was a part of his fellowship with God. The curse, God said, now you're going to work by the sweat of your brow, and instead of the ground blossoming easy, it's going to be harder, and it's going to be more delicate, dil delicate. <laughs> it's going to be more difficult, and you're going to struggle. So again, being occupied, being diligent is a part of the way God's created us. And he says, someone who just follows frivolity, and look, there's a lot of things that can cause us to just frivolously waste time doing this and doing that and watching this. And just, I mean, there are so many ways that we can get caught up into just worthless, vain activities. And God says, people who are doing that and they don't just stay focused and aren't diligent in personal responsibility, God says, they show they lack understanding how life works. Everybody's got to do something, be constructive, generate what they need. That's how we're responsible, and we take care of our own needs properly. He says, verse 12, the wicked covet the catch of evil men. The idea is they, they see what evil men are doing, and because they're evil themselves, they're willing to, in greediness, make compromises themselves. But the root, here's that word again, the root of the righteous yields fruit. In other words, the righteous person says, I'm just going to get rooted doing what's right. I'm not going to do things like wicked people do. I'm just going to get rooted in doing what's right. And I trust in time God's going to make that yield what I need in my life. Verse 13, the wicked is ensnared by the transgression of his lips, but the righteous will come through trouble. So the idea there, again, the wicked ensnared by the transgression of his lips. Again, saying things that get us caught into problems whether it's speaking things we shouldn't speak, whether it's lying, as it often can be a problem of the wicked. You know, lying, it just simply causes more traps. Eventually, you just get caught, God says. You just get ensnared. It never works out because you can't keep up with all the stories you tell, and eventually, you just get caught and ensnared by what your lips have said, lying and being dishonest. But he says, here's the better plan wisely. The righteous will come through trouble. In other words, just do the right thing from start and keep remaining honest through the whole process. And God says, here's what you'll find. Then even when the troubles come, because you were honest from the start and you stood forthright and honest through the whole process, God says, that'll actually be the thing that gets you out of trouble when trouble comes. Because it'll just be clear as day, transparent. Look, this is what it's been. This is what it still is. And then when the trouble comes, God says, much more quickly, it'll just it'll just fall off. It'll be like water that rolls off the duck's back. They may throw dirt, but it just won't stick because of the fact that you just did what was good and right and honest. Verse 14, and a man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, that is by what he speaks, that what he communicates, and the recompense or reward or compensation of a man's hands will be rendered to him. So notice here the idea of verse 14, God says in wisdom, there's more than one way to labor and work to actually be able to obtain resources that we need. The first part of verse 14, he describes the conduct and work of those who are compensated by what they do, we might say, with their minds and with their mouths. That is, those who by way of some form of work or occupation, whether they're a salesperson, 
And so they use their mind and how to relate properly to people and intelligent thought and understanding of you know, parts or reasons. And, and then they, with their mouths, communicate. And so whether it's that way or whether it's someone who uses their mouth in another way, that, that through their minds and their mouths, he says a man can be satisfied with good by the good fruit of his mouth. That's one way to accrue what we need and have what's necessary in a form of work. And then he says also the recompense of a man's hands will be rendered to him. So there are others who conduct their work by laboring with their hands, doing manual labor, accomplishing tasks, and by the work of their hands, that's how they're recompensed and given compensation for what they need. Again, wisdom realizes there's lots of different ways to work. And again, we just find that avenue that God creates and maybe that we're more wired for and, and life comes in seasons. Sometimes that may even change. It may go from manual labor to a different type of thing or it go may from you know this, that, to now all of a sudden it's back to manual labor. But to realize in wisdom, God can use either if we're just faithful in whatever it is we put ourselves into doing. Verse 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. So again, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Notice God says here, here's one of the ways you can tell someone's behaving like a fool. They always think they're right. God says a fool is marked by this. They always think they are right in their eyes. They never consider other people's views. They're never interested in other people's thoughts. In their eyes, they are always right and they're going to stick to that, and they don't even have interest in hearing someone else's outlook on a matter. God says, there's an indication someone's a fool. He says, in contrast to that, someone who is wise is, in contrast, someone who heeds counsel. That is someone who recognizes, I'm not an expert on everything. In fact, there are a lot of things that I don't know very much about at all, so I'm going to seek the input of others. I'm going to listen to other people. So the wise person is characterized by seeking to counsel of others and even responding to that advice by taking that advice and carrying it out sometimes. Sometimes the wisest thing we can do is even if something does seem right in our eyes and we listen to someone else and we say, you know what? I think you know more than me about this than I do, so I'm actually going to go with what you're saying. The Bible is going to say later on, with the well-advised is wisdom. And so one of the wisest things we can do is make well-informed decisions. So he says the wise heeds counsel. That's the indication. A fool's wrath is known at once. The idea is foolish people have no control over their anger. They just have no emotional control. That's how they can express, in a sense, their foolishness. Their wrath is known at once. Somebody hurts them or makes them mad, and boom, they just explode. And he says that's, that's the wrath of a fool. They have no regulation of their emotions. But a prudent man, one who thinks beyond the moment, covers shame. That is, they, they keep or hold back shameful behavior. He who speaks truth declares righteousness, but a false witness deceit. So again, if speaking the truth as compared to speaking what's false, God says, is the determination there of whether someone themselves is living right or they're living deceitfully. And there's one, verse 18, who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. And the truthful lip shall be established forever, but a lying tongue, seems he's kind of harping on this idea here, is but for a moment. Deceit, he says, is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. 
I love the continuous reminders here of just the value of honesty, but notice he buffers that, verse 18, by saying, there's one who speaks like the piercings of a sword, but the tongue of the wise promotes health. In other words, God is saying it is wise to remember the words that we speak and listen and the way that we speak is very, very important because it can either bring tremendous harm and ruin. He says, those, there are some who speak like the piercings of a sword. Well, I'm just going to say it like it is. I'm just that kind of person. I just tell it like it is. Well, that's good sometimes. But sometimes in doing that or doing that in an unloving way or the way you go about it and just telling it like it is, you're basically just destroying people. And you're just going around stabbing and you're leaving a bunch of bleeding people because you're speaking like the piercings of a sword. But he says the tongue of the wise promotes health. The idea is we can use our tongue to actually bring healing to people, to increase the health of a situation, the health of a problem. And again, it's all determined upon how we use our words and how we communicate. That's very important. He says the wise person tries to use their tongue to promote health, to bring healing in a situation. Verse 21, he says, no grave trouble will overtake the righteous, but the wicked shall be filled with evil. So again, The idea there, generally speaking, if you live righteously, then typically no major grave severe trouble will overtake your life because that right pattern will avoid a lot of problematic things. But he says the wicked, they're going to be filled with evil because they do what's wrong. They're just going to continuously be reaping back into their life evil consequences of their wicked behavior. Verse 22, he comes back to this thought we've seen many times before, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. The idea is he strongly detests or has hatred for lying. But in contrast, notice those who deal truthfully are his delight. So in other words, God feels very strongly about both lying and honesty. And God says, I detest, despise, I have hatred when someone's lying and being dishonest. And in contrast, God says, I find great delight and I love when people speak truthfully. Why? Because sometimes it's not easy to speak truthfully. Sometimes it's hard to be honest. Sometimes it's more difficult to take the honest path and just communicate openly and honestly and be willing to embrace whatever comes with that. And so God says, boy, I really take delight when I see someone dealing truthfully in a given situation. He says, verse 23, a prudent man conceals knowledge, but the heart of fools proclaims foolishness. Again, here the idea there, the prudent man conceals knowledge, but notice the fool is reflected by always proclaiming foolishness. The implication here seems to be that someone who tends to be foolish, they're always sharing their opinion. (laughs) You know, they always have something to say in every given situation. You know, the idea there is fools are quick to speak their own opinion and they have to always talk about what they think they know about everything. And he says that's one of the ways you can tell the difference between wisdom and foolishness. He says the wise person, the prudent person, they conceal knowledge. In other words, they may know a great deal, but they patiently wait for the right moment to speak. They're not quick to speak. They speak when it's necessary. They offer input on right occasions to share knowledge. And that's because they're wise. But he says fools, they got an opinion on everything. And they have to share what they think about everything. And often at the end of it, All they've shared is a bunch of foolishness that didn't really help very much, God says. And it's a clear indication. 
Verse 24, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. So again, back to this idea of the value of diligence. Those who are diligent, hardworking, they end up experiencing greater opportunity, a place of leadership, rulership. And typically that's the way it works. Diligence is usually rewarded with greater opportunity. And he says, in contrast, the lazy man will put the forced labor. The person who's in forced labor is someone who has to have somebody harshly rule over them. And why? A lot of times, sometimes the reason for that is when someone is lazy, they need a lot of harsh supervision because they're too lazy. When somebody's diligent, you don't need to supervise them. In fact, they're the ones who are excelling and the ones you're promoting and the ones that are advancing and getting greater opportunity because they're diligent, they're motivated, they're hardworking. But when someone's lazy, they need constant supervision because of their own laziness. Now, if you're struggling with anxiety and depression, verse 25, you got to come back next week. Let's stand, let's pray together.